Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 6060 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And this week on the podcast, I can't quite believe this either, I'm joined by the award-winning Irish singer-songwriter Declan O'Rourke. Now, it's been 17 years since I first discovered his fabulous music, and what a journey it's been. And a real delight earlier on in 2021 to have a new LP called Arrivals, released by Declan, produced by one Paul Weller. The most emotionally raw and affecting album of his career was recorded over six days at Black Barn Studios, otherwise known as Weller HQ. And to quote Declan, he was there every moment before, during and long after, discussing ideas about this and that, even down to the artwork. It was hugely impressive. So let's get into it. Declan O'Rourke, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Dan. Delighted to be on with you. Thank you. Now, where in the world do we find you and which room in the house is this? I can see a guitar, so I'm imagining that some magic happens in this room of some sort. Yeah, this is uh, my studio space, workspace. I don't know, I look around it. it is, you know, well, out there, actually, you can't see it right now. All you see is a tree there. But the Atlantic Ocean is out there. Oh, beautiful. We're on the west coast of Ireland and Europe, really. My desk is, you know... It's kind of organized chaos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is where I kind of live and, and dream and, you know, I love this space. And Ireland is the pull because um, you, you started off in Ireland, then when I went down under, then back to Ireland. I mean, you consider Ireland to be home, I'm guessing. I suppose I do, yeah. I mean, I think we're all kind of international these days, aren't we? You know, everything is so globalized and cultures and that. But I think just to be close to relatives and family, you know, home is home. That's why I came home from Australia, really. I, I just realized I didn't want to be that guy who's so far away. And, you know, we've got family in um, Sydney and you um, 
particularly through what we've been through in the past 18 months, you do realize that connection of not being able to see each other properly in the flesh and how far away that really is, even though we're connected by video calls and stuff these days. It's it's bizarre, isn't it? Very true. Yeah, I mean, we had become so convenient. You know, you're only a day from anywhere on a plane. That's yeah. This has certainly made it feel more distant, doesn't it? Or given given us back the sense of distance that really is there. We, it's kind of an illusion that it's not, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, look, I'm so excited that we've we've got you on the podcast because you know your entire existence for me as a musician has coincided with Paul Weller because it was Paul Weller that introduced me to you in the first place, which I would imagine is quite true of, of, of quite a lot of fans because he's been a massive supporter from day one. But we'll get into all that in a sec because first of all, I'd love to understand when it was that you first discovered the music of Paul Weller yourself. Yeah, well, you know, around 2006, I think, we were two of many artists on the V2 label in London. And uh, Paul was the top of the tree. I'm sure they're big signing, you know. And I was this guy who nobody knew down the bottom, I'm sure, you know. That was my first record out. You know, I was aware at that stage of Paul Weller, but I didn't, uh, I couldn't name a song. That's being honest, you know. And I guess how old was I then? Maybe 27, 28. What basically happened was my record was coming out. One of the A&R team at V2 told me just off the cuff, one of them had given Paul my record and that he really liked it and that he he liked one song in particular. He loves Galileo or something is what I heard. And I was like, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I totally, totally didn't believe it and just kept saying, oh, thanks. You know, but I really was dismissing it in my head. It just saying they're, they're just pouring smoke into my pocket here. You know, they were liable to say anything and you couldn't really trust them. You know? <laughs> nice people as they were. Their job is to boost you up and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, you know, the record came out kind of almost briefly. Um, I got a phone call one day. I was in Dublin, actually. I was in a bar on a Sunday. A few of my friends playing songs in the corner. I used to sit in and play a couple of tunes with them. And uh, I got a phone call and I answered it. And it was, it was hard to hear, but it was this very thick London accent, you know. And I was trying to say, who, who's it? Sorry, hello. And it's like, it's Paul, it's Paul, you know, Paul Weller here. And I was like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> you know, he, he was just calling to say hi and uh, I, I love your record. And I was like, oh, my God, they weren't lying. You know? <laughs> that was our actual first contact, I suppose. And uh, a few months later, he invited me. They were going to give him, uh, I'm not sure what the award was exactly. It was a Brit award, maybe a Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, yeah okay yeah yeah he was going to be doing a performance for that is my understanding of it he wanted to do a a warm-up show in the 100 club in oxford street which is a cool little venue only holds probably 100 people 100 club and he invited me to open that show and so i flew over and i met met him there and it was just the loveliest guy all of you guys were the audience all you know all his fans and i was this again this guy nobody knew from ireland and i was just about to walk on onto stage and i could you know the noise and this room of people who's standing crowd I was just saying to myself there is no fucking way they're going to listen to me you know (laughs) they're not going to be interested at all and uh, I said to myself I'm going to have to do something clever here to get their attention 
And so I gave whoever was on the side of the stage, I said, will you hold my guitar for a minute? They said, yeah. And I walked onto the stage, walked up to the microphone and I said, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Weller, you know. And so the whole crowd went bananas and turned around and kind of just said, has asked me to play for 30 <laughs> minutes before he comes on. <laughs> <laughs> I could hear the laughs and the kind of, oh, you, you chancer, you know, but I had their attention then and I got a nice reception. But going back to the, your first question, what happened after that was Paul came on the stage and played this electric set. And, you know, I was like, I know that song. I know that one too. Jeez, I know that one. I know, you know, and I was amazed at how much of his material I knew just from, you know, absorbing over the years. And uh, so that was great. Yeah, it's funny because you're a similar age to me. I think you're, you're, you were born 76. I was born 75. Would that be right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my discovery of Weller was not a diet of the jam and the style council that I was aware of, but I think it was osmosis probably more than anything else. But I'm not sure how well that music traveled down under because when you were, you, you were a kid, you moved from Ireland to Australia, as we mentioned. But but it's funny, isn't it? As soon as you hear those songs, you're like, yeah, I've heard that on the radio or it's connected at some yeah. point. You're not entirely sure where. It's funny, yeah. I, I would say it was in Ireland. I would say it was in Ireland. And probably, you know, I moved to Australia when I was 10. And up until that, you know, I wouldn't have been an avid radio listener so I wouldn't have absorbed it that way and I was back by the time I was 14 or 15 and I was playing music then I actually I went back to Australia when I was 19 and came back when I was 24 so I was gone for another chunk specifically when I came home from Australia when I was 24 from that period up until the period I just described when when we had contact and I met him through I was very aware of his name in Dublin he was doing a lot of concerts big big shows in and out a lot and um, I knew he had a ginormous following mm. in Ireland so we have to talk about that debut album of yours because I mean man what a magical piece of work I mean Paul has taste but that was such a lovely find when that became a recommendation through Galileo that you mentioned the single but I mean every track on that album is like a greatest hits for me it's brilliant honestly it's like Love is the Way No yeah. Breaks Sarah One Way Minds it's, I mean it's a terrific piece of work am I right in thinking that you didn't really play music back home to anybody else when in Australia it was only when you came back to Ireland when you were like 24 then that you started playing music to, to other people yeah I was 24 when I played my first live show. Yeah, even even though I was attempting to write songs from the time I was about 15 or 16. Yeah, so I kind of did my apprenticeship in the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> but was that, a collection, like, was that a collection of songs that you'd been storing up all that time then that, that you just got kind of then suddenly released really. to people? No? Well, no, they literally came hard and fast from that. Maybe from... You know, part of the catalyst for me to come home from Australia was I met a, another guy on a, it was, it was on a building site and somebody introduced me to another musician who was from Ireland and he was writing songs and I was writing songs. We met up and played each other a few songs and then we started writing a few together, kind of. That was kind of like lifting the lid somehow. I knew then I wanted to approach it as a career. I, I had known for years and years, but I couldn't find the way to do it. I tried leaving work a couple of times and gone, but you know, there was no scene where I was in Melbourne. There was a cover scene. There, there were probably places that were big on original music in a different part of the city, but I, I just wasn't connected to it. I, I had no access to that. And um, so uh, the, the decision was to come home and to do it here. I don't know why, just I felt. Maybe just my identity, people would get me more here. And again, to also be around family. But, you know, within, say, three weeks of coming home, I found an open mic night. It was just 
explosive to find that and to find that there were these other people doing and there was a whole scene happening here some of the biggest names in Irish music over the last 10 or 15 years you know there was like uh, Glenn Hansard and Paddy Casey Damien Dempsey Damien Rice Gemma Hayes most of those people were in that room that night that first night I walked in wow and I just found myself in the thick of it and I was like this is the place I need to be and um, I went from never performing publicly to playing something like 140 open mic nights that year I I used to just sometimes just play my songs and then get on the bus home because I wanted to start writing a song for the next week, you know? It's like it's almost uh, like, you, yeah, the, the lid's off. The, it was crazy, yeah. I just, and, and I was trying to hold down a day job at the same time to support myself and get a flat and all that. But um, it was just the cat was well and truly out of the bag. And I think all of those songs on that first record were written in those three years, say, between. I made the record when I was 27. So it's a magical, I mean, a magical, magical album, I'd say. I, I could list every track, like I say, they're, they're all brilliant. And thanks um, so much, Dan. Thank honestly, you. it's lovely. But Galileo, it was a song that Paul talked about an awful lot at that time, like, and still now refers to it as um, the song that he'd most wished he'd written in the past like 20, 30 years. That must, I mean, how does that feel when a guy like that talks about your song like that? Oh, it was just so good. I mean, somebody who's been around for as long as he has and has seen it all come and go, you know, through the 60s, 70s. 80s, 90s, whatever, you know, to single you out and say, or to single out your song and say, you know, and it was great because at first he did say 20 years and then it was 25 and then it was 30 (laughs) and I was like, Jesus, this keeps going, we might get 50, you know. Just, you know, for a young artist, you know, I was brand new at the time, obviously, and my first record out in the world and people are coming and going so quick and uh, to get an endorsement like that from somebody who's just seen it all was huge huge great confidence booster and just something that says okay yeah trust your instincts you know you know what you're doing you know because when I wrote that song I was hugely convinced that nobody else would like it really really I, I, I just wrote it for myself it reminded me of the music that my granddad used to listen to you know these these great old kind of Cole Porter and Irving Berlin kind of songs that the kind of songs that people don't write anymore. They were, they were like perfect little universe that you would get lost in. You know, they were, they were designed, I think, for escapism during the war. But some of them I found you could hear a piece of the song and never know where the, the writer had begun. They were like a circle that joins itself. And I, I found that fascinating lyrically. And I kind of, I wouldn't say I studied them, but I loved them. And I, I listened to a lot of that stuff and I liked it. And I guess it informed a kind of, in a similar way to Paul, actually, I think there's something we really have in common is that we've never been stuck with one style of music. We kind of move around and we're not afraid to, you know, and me comparing myself to Paul is a, is a, is a dangerous thing. I know. <laughs> you know, um, I don't have a fraction of the success he's had and, and and experience, but I think we have that in common. And that was one of the reasons I thought he would be great to work with. But um, that was where that song came from, and um, I was surprised more than anybody when it kind of landed, if you like, or it caught on. And it caught on before the record was even out, actually. It was really strange. I was in a band before making the record with a really great friend of mine. He was, again, similarly, when I come home from Australia, this guy, Paddy Casey, he was like the biggest thing on the songwriter scene in Ireland. He was the new kid on the block. He was big signing with Sony and he was selling records like you wouldn't believe. He was doing great. And he asked me to be his 
his guitar player from these open mic nights. He, he liked my playing and he said, why don't you do this until your thing takes off? It was really generous. And he used to, you know, so I, I ended up kind of uh, getting an inside track. I used to be in his band. I used to be the opening act and I'd be the guy on stage during the, I was the longest guy on stage <laughs> all around the country and um, used to go and do radio interviews with him. I'd be a backup guitar player. And so he was really giving me a great insight and it was like an apprenticeship in itself. Mm. I'd even sit in on record company meetings and I was hearing all this stuff. You know, there was, I was hearing these A&R guys say, you've got to have three singles to put out a record. You've got to have three radio friendly things, you know, so putting this record together this first record Kyabram and I was choosing the songs out of the list of songs I had and I was like okay well I've got to have there was no breaks and your world one way minds they were the three I was like okay they ticked that box Galileo was way outside that was just for me nobody's gonna like that but I love it my family would like that so while I was making the record I was asked to come out and um play on somebody's outside broadcast, you know, like a radio from a from a, a venue somewhere, radio show. And again, I was an unknown guy. And the DJ was this guy, Tom Dunn. He, was, he had a huge show here, a bit like a John Peel in Ireland. It was called Pet Sounds, really popular show in, in the music world. And when I got up to do my stint, I learned later that he went outside for a smoke break because he's like, I don't know how this guy is, you know. And that was cool. And I played four songs. One of them was Galileo. I went back to the studio afterwards, you know, you're in a vacuum. You don't know what happened out there. But the next day, apparently, his, his, his set of switchboard was jammed with people saying, what was that song that guy played last night? He had to go back and listen to it. And as soon as he heard it, he started playing it off the off the air. Wow. He was playing it every night for weeks, you know, and then I finished the record and my, my little record company was like, well, I think we know which song to put out. <laughs> you know, I would have never chose that song. So it was real, uh, an outside. Brilliant. I yeah. love that. I love that. And you're right, because everything, similar to Paul, every time we get an album from you, you know, from a Big Bad, Beautiful World to Magpie's Eye to Gold Bars in the Sun, they're very different each time. But the thing that kind of holds it all together for me is the, the storytelling. And I don't know if you consider yourself a storyteller as much as you do a musician. I don't know. It, does it always start with the words? Does it always start with the lyrics and how, you know, what you want to say? They're the most important thing. Yeah. I don't think I'd write a song if I didn't feel like I had something to say, you know, and if I sit down, to try and write something, I'd have to feel like there's some kind of substance coming out, you know. Um, I don't know whether it's just the kind of personality I have, you know, I'm maybe a little in the, I don't know, your OCD category or whatever, you know, not in a bad way, I hope, but, you know, there's things going on and I'm a thinker kind of. And so really I get my inspiration to write a song when an actual idea comes. And early on in my career, when I was not career, even when I was writing songs first, I remember when I was about 19 or 20 and I was just throwing stuff out there and I had a four track recorder and I was putting songs down. And I remember not knowing what the hell I was doing. And I'd listen back to these songs and they were just some kind of stream of consciousness or whatever. And I felt like they were formless lyrically or something and they used to depress me you know and i used to say what the fuck is that about you know i don't know you know uh, sometimes i'd decide after oh that's like about that argument i had with my friend or and i would attribute them to something but i wasn't quite sure so i actually made a decision and i stopped I said, I'm not going to write another song until I actually decide what it's going to be about and maybe write something that's 
not just depressing or something, but maybe uplifting, but not in a twee way or something, you know, not cliche and hammy. And I stopped for about a year. And when I approached it after that, it was always different. And I think I developed from then onwards to, to the way I do it now, which is the song is largely written in my head completely before I touch an instrument. And that way I find it, it challenges you in more ways than that because you concentrating on the psychology of it, what people are going to be thinking when they hear certain words, but musically as well, you're don't just go to old habits on your instrument, say like you pick up a guitar to write a song and you might just start strumming a G or something. You go, ah, jeez. Again, you know. So if you just do it in your head and you hear this music and you hear the colors and then when you're finished, you say, okay, I have to figure out how to play this now. It actually takes you to new places and it's a challenge as a musician as well. And you have to find, and sometimes it evolves as you're playing. It's still, but you follow a set of instructions that your brain has created. You know, I hope that makes sense. Maybe it sounds weird. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's really interesting. And I was talking to Chris Difford and Catherine Williams have been on the podcast and they're both talking about oh, yeah. the power of lyrics and the power of words. And I find that really interesting as a topic, because when you think of the jam and the songs like that, entertainment and private hell and those you know, it was obviously a lyrics first yeah. thing telling a story in an amazing way but when we, we get to albums like wake up the nation for instance and um mm. we'll talk more about that in a sec but you feel that there was in him talking seemed to be more of a kind of we're just you know throwing words in that fit the song and fit the melody and it's a tiny different way of working isn't it well there is no right way or wrong way you know and i think whatever your your form is i can only ever say what's right for me and sometimes i wish so hard that i could do it the other way <laughs> because you absolutely love songs you know like changing man or whatever or whatever or you know voodoo child and y- you can tell by certain songs that a song is sometimes a ball of energy and you know in a way that somebody didn't sit there and slave over the lyrics and say I'm going to move that word. I'm going to change that word because it's a different kind of song. They have a different kind of power. I don't think I have that ability or, or at least I haven't pursued it enough. I, I feel a bit more like I'm looking into an engine when I try to do that. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I've been doing it my way for so long. And, you know, as you say, people have now described me. I often people say, uh, concentrate on the word storyteller, which I've never considered myself. I mean, I, that's blindly happened to me i don't know why or how i find the form and the the method that people have infinitely interesting you could talk about it all day couldn't you you know i, I love the way people write that's and it's fascinating and as somebody with no talent whatsoever in any of these spaces can't play a musical instrument can't write lyrics can't do any of this stuff i find it fascinating that when, when i meet people like yourself who can do it and, and do it so amazingly well it's like i mean it's a proper art form but the thing is it seems to me as well you draw your and, and similar to um, paul in a way with the, with certainly with the jam stuff and you're you know from the inside looking out so these are these stories that you discover are other people's stories that and am i right in thinking you don't read fiction you read non-fiction and, and you just pick them up from kind of stories that uh, some of these things from stories that you find like true Mostly stories true, but i can now say that i write fiction yes uh, we're gonna get on to that i'm excited <laughs> about that your autumn is nuts my friend your autumn is gonna be crazy <laughs> sorry i went completely off course uh, but you've got a real, a real fascination in true stories and like people's truths i guess i do i do i absolutely do and you know i would much quicker watch a documentary or a film maybe maybe not even necessarily a documentary i love documentaries certain ones but i'd much more watch a film about something that i know happened and something that i think is made up I'm a bit of a realist and I like to 
think about what's relevant or what says something about the way we live. I know everything does in one shape or form, but I'm fascinated with people's lives. And I think, um, I don't know, I think, I think, and, and with the past in a way as well, because I think when you look at somebody's life from afar, and maybe even from after their life, you can see in a nutshell what happened, how it ended up and you can judge the impact of what a decision had. I think that's what fascinates me about it. I'm very nostalgic, almost to a fault, very sentimental. I'm very emotion driven person. Yeah, I think I think it lends itself to what I do, I suppose. Yeah, when it, and it comes yeah. through. It comes through in the songs. I mentioned Wake Up the Nation. Um, let me take you back to 2010, the Olympia Theatre. Paul was there. They did like a like a residency. It was like four nights. I went to that tour in London. I did five nights in a row at the Royal Albert Hall. He did also did four nights at the Olympia Theatre. Um, and you got to go up on stage and play with Paul and play Galileo with Weller. How did how did that come about? That was great. That was so good. Yeah. Well, I was in the studio in Limerick. I think it was. And I was mastering Magpie's Eye and Paul called. He might have even already been in town in Dublin. He may have started his residency. I'm not sure. But anyway, he, he said, would you like to get up and play a couple of songs with me next week or something? And I was like, oh, man, of course, you know. And uh, so he showed up and um, all the gang were there. A lot of great heads in the band and I think Lawrence Watson was there taking pictures as well who ended up taking the pictures for the Arrivals album just great heads and and Paul was just in really lovely form I remember sitting in the dressing room with Paul and we played through um, Galileo and it was kind of teaching them the chords with Stan as they call him it was just wonderful it was just wonderful and Lawrence took a few pictures of that I have them somewhere we were in the dressing room and uh, I remember seeing Paul ironing his, his trousers or his shirt or whatever and I was, I was like uh, you still iron your own stuff you know <laughs> <laughs> I don't think um, he'd trust he said, anybody else with the clothes would he that was the thing no but actually it was interesting because he said the same he said I, I love doing it before a show and I, I'm the same like I, I always iron you know I'm not as uh, as much of a fashionist I don't know if that's a, 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 the right word or you know I like wearing nice things on stage but I always iron something before and I, I I always find it helps spam me out. It's, just, it's very zen, kind of it's like meditating or something. And he said the same, so that was great. And then we we also did uh, two other songs. We did uh, he wanted to do Black is the Color, which is a famous folk song made famous by Chrissy Moore that he loved, and we did that. And we did all along the Watchtower as well. Oh, brilliant! Wow, yeah, right. so wow. Uh, it was great. And we sat on stools on stage, you know. I hadn't seen him in a few years, actually. I remember, and I'd let my hair grow. And when I met him coming onto the wings of the stage, he says, you don't tell me with your bonnet. Now, let's fast forward to 2021, to this year. Um, there we are, lockdown two, and this bloody beauty arrives, arrives, arrivals, the LP. I mean, it's always lovely to get a new album from you, as I say, but this one produced by Paul Weller. So there was the connection with Weller. How did that come about? Was that was you reaching out to Paul? Yeah, it sure was. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're in touch kind of sporadically. Over time, mostly when I send Paul a record, sometimes he just reaches out and says something nice or whatever, or says hello. And I think I had, um, we're talking three years ago now, and it might have been beginning of 2019. And one morning here, I had uh, True Meanings had just come in the post on vinyl, and I stuck it on, and I was getting my son ready for a crash. I was just listening to it in the background, and we're just going, Jesus, that sounds good. 
really, really comfortable. You can really just hear how relaxed he is in the studio. You know, I was thinking, how many fucking hours has he spent in the studio over the years? Must be just so. And I was kind of going, I'd love to be a fly on the wall, see him working in the studio and you could learn so much. And that was all going on. And then in the back of my head for probably a year before that moment, I'd been saying to myself, I think I'd like to work with a producer on this record. I've never done it before because the songs that were coming, you know, The Harbour and Stars Over Canberra, all these kind of things, they were pretty stripped back songs. You know, I was almost hearing them with just me and a guitar. I was trying to think, who could I ask, you know, because I don't want to just go to some producer I don't know because they're a name or some, you know, some hot producer or something like that. And I was like, I want somebody who gets my music and somebody who I would admire enough to to listen to their suggestions. And what has happened with music to its detriment, I think, in, in recent decades, even perhaps, is that... In many cases, the, the record has become more about the producer than the artist. You get a lot of these producers, you know, like the likes of uh, Rick Rubin, yeah. T-Bone, Burnett, and, all, and not to say that they're not brilliant and they do brilliant things for people's music, nothing like that. And they're the good ones, actually. They're, they're the good ones. They're the ones, like if somebody said to me, Rick Rubin's on the phone, he wants to produce a record, I'd say, fuck, give me the phone. You know? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. you know, so I'll just get that straight. I'm not insulting those guys. You know? I'm here, Carl, you know. But, um, but I think that's dangerous, you know, and I think record companies get involved and, and, and hire producers for that reason because they know a producer is going to make somebody's record sound a certain way and it's going to have a big name because of the producer, no matter who the young band is or whatever. And so I was allergic to that. I didn't want that. But I did know that I wanted to work with somebody and I knew personally where I was in my life as well. I didn't want to be so in control of everything on my own. You know, I was like, I want to just enjoy work with people and kind of just let the hair down a little bit and just enjoy the experience. And so all that had been going on in my head. And like I said, this morning I was listening to that record and all those thoughts come into my head. And at some point the two just went bang and it was like a little spark, you know, and I was like, wow, maybe Paul, maybe Paul's the guy, you know? And then it was like, but I wonder would he, would he say yes? Or would he say fuck off or whatever? (laughs) I didn't know, you know? So uh, before I chickened out, you know, within uh, I got my son off the crash or whatever, and probably on the way back or something, I sent him a text, you know, and I just said, Hey, have you ever produced anyone before? You know? And uh, I got a lovely response back straight away. And it was let me hear some stuff, you know, I'm really honored and I'd, I'd love to be involved if I can, if I feel like I can help or feel like I can bring something to the table when I hear the stuff. That was really it. And um, from that point on, it was just felt for the risk I took in sending that message. I was just rewarded. They say the universe is listening and uh, I, I believe in that stuff. You know, when, you, you know, they say if you if you want to achieve something that seems outrageous or whatever, don't try and think of every step. You think of the first step, you know, and you just take a step and, and it's, the universe will take 10 to meet you in the other direction. If you take a chance, you know, I found that to be true, no matter how hippy dippy it sounds or whatever, but there's something in it. You know, I think I was just paid back in spades. And, I, uh, you know, it was hopefully I think the record is, is proof of that. 
Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And we'll, we'll talk about the songs and stuff in a second. What I'd love to know is because, I mean, it was fairly soon after True Meanings. So True Meanings was out in the September. Paul then did the shows at the Royal Festival Hall October. And then you're over at Black Barn Studios in Surrey, Paul's HQ, the following April. So it's quite a quick turnaround. Did you have all those songs ready, written and ready to go? Or was it actually once Paul said yes, you frantically had to start writing more material to, to fill out the album? How did it work? Most of them were written. You know, I'm, I'm kind of generally anyway, up until that point or up until lockdown, when I started writing, as I said, a book, I haven't written any songs during lockdown, but uh, or very little, but on average over the years, I would average kind of a song a month, I think, you know, and so there's always a backlog there, but most of those songs were very current and I had been gigging them for say a year or two beforehand. Okay, right. I think the Harbour was probably the oldest of them. That was the one when it came out and out of me, I mean, not released, you know, when it came out, I, I kind of went, oh, that's it felt like just a little shift, you know, in a direction for an album, you know, and songs kind of came in the wake of that. I think at a guess, I'd say eight or nine of what were on the record were written. There's only 10 on it, actually. But yeah. So when I met Paul in, in Black Barn, I walked in with maybe I had sent him maybe 13 or 14 songs, demos. Mostly when I say demos, they were just live recordings from gigs. I don't do many demos, really. But um, he instantly steered me towards a certain kind of song, the ones that were more intimate. That was a fascinating part of the process because I remember asking him, do you think in this day and age even, do you think we should, uh, and this was before we even met up, I was like, do you think we should but you a kind of uh, uh, an element of it or a song or two that are geared towards radio. Because like I said, I had piles of songs, but it was which ones to use. And I had all of these new ones, which I didn't feel were very radio orientated. And his answer was great. He just said, well, you know, he was quite frank and honest. And he just said, well, fuck knows what gets on radio anyway. So <laughs> what is the point in even trying to aim for that? You know, he said, I just think we try to make a great record. And that's what ultimately stands up to the test of time, if you can achieve that. So I said, that's fucking music to my ears. <laughs> no, and um, it was great. It was like licensed to indulge more in the place I inhabit, which is not really geared towards radio, you know. So anyway, I arrived in. And there was still a little bit of weeding out to do, obviously, because some of them I played and, you know, I played them one go and he'd kind of go, I like that, but I don't think it fits with the others, you know, keep it for something else. These ones definitely. And it started to take this shape of this very intimate, personal like a, I, I, I likened it to a portrait actually a self-portrait in a way i would have never chose that group of songs on its own if it had been just me really right. so that was the first impact he had on it and it was huge you know i'm so proud of the way it turned out in that way because it does it shows you in a certain light and then ultimately what happened was he had whittled it down to maybe nine songs we did two three-day recording lumps in between the two, which were about a month apart, he said to me, we have about nine. We're three minutes short. Or in other words, or the other way looking at it, you have three minutes to play with on vinyl. You have three more minutes if you want to fill them. He said, write me another song. <laughs> and so I said, OK, cool. And I loved the challenge, you know. So a week later, I sent him two brand new songs. And one of them was Painter's Light, 
which ah, ended up right. being track, you know. So had it half written for a while and I felt that it belonged with these songs, but I hadn't been able to finish it for some reason. So when he asked for one more, it gave me the the right injection, you know, and just was the right time, you know. So I think Brilliant. it really worked. Brilliant. I mean, that's a lovely opening, that that line, um, one day I'll be an artist, I'll rise up with the dawn. It's a lovely opening to an album. I didn't realise that was a last minute kind of addition. I like that. Yeah, yeah. A last minute, first minute. And, and on that is you, uh, so you on guitar and vocal and Paul Weller on vibes, right? So is that what, is that what you mean by that? Well, no, no, not just, not just actual vibe, not just, uh, Vibrations like oh right, like, it's like that. His, his vibes and actual instruments. He actually played oh, the right. vibes on it too. Yeah. Oh okay. Just, and you know, there brings us nicely to the other amazing thing that he did was you know, and I, I mentioned before that I felt even though I completely handed it over to him and to you know his suggestions and whatever he was going to suggest, I was gonna I was gonna go along with and and give it a go, you know. Um, but I was almost sure that it would just be me and and my guitar. I thought his contribution would more be cut that bit off there or make that a bit longer or you don't need that first that kind of thing, you know. As well, maybe I was just blind to the sonic element, you know, but. You know, as soon as we got into the studio, he, he said, um, I think what we should do is add just these subtle little textures, you know, like brush strokes, you know, just a little bit, a few bars or something here, a bit of Hammond on there, a bit of, you know, and part of me was just like <laughs> frightened, you know, because, uh, because in my experience and having produced my other six records or whatever, I had, and I'll say wrongly, come to a point where I believed that you cannot introduce something out of nowhere in the middle of, say, a naked song and then take it out. I wonder sometimes if I should even draw attention to that, but, you know, because then it's then you're conscious of it, but mm. really it doesn't matter. What happened was he he made this suggestion. And I said, anyway, I said, of course, let's do it. Um, but I wasn't prepared for how well it worked. I couldn't believe that in every single case it actually worked and, uh, you know, and it didn't stick out like a sore thumb. It was just like some little thing, you know, and it just enhanced it. And somehow it made them like it could have, I thought, just me and a guitar, it could have sounded like an old 60s record. And that way it could have been almost dated sounding. But somehow these little textures brought it into the presence that made it contemporary, you know, and uh, it was a stroke of genius, I thought, you know, and it really just worked. And he played them, but for the most part, apart from the strings, say, for example, or Ben's drums, you know, but on, on maybe five or six songs, anyway, he played a few bars of something. And on Painter's Light, it was the vibes, which is essentially uh, like a vibraphone. A vibraphone is a percussion instrument, like a xylophone, but they're big wooden blocks. But he played through a Mellotron, which is like a, a cool 60s instrument, which you'd hear on the likes of um, Strawberry Fields. It's like a keyboard that has pieces of tape inside. It's an all analog, really cool instrument. And so, you you know, next time you listen to the song, you might listen out for it and see where it is. Yeah. Nice. Okay, we'll do it. Hannah Peel's been on the podcast recently, and some oh, of those brush strokes that you talk about come from working with Hannah as well. What did, what did she add to the album? She was just great. She was fantastic. And Paul's suggestion again, she did all the string arrangements and brought in the players too. 
she just nailed it. And again, coming from a place where I was handing it over and, and really I was ready for this, you know, but I ha- I've worked with some arrangers in the past, but at times I've done it myself. You know, I've, I've scored things for, for orchestras and stuff on, on my record because I had a series of concerts with orchestras over the years. Um, maybe a dozen concerts with the orchestra in Dublin over six, seven, eight years. And I took it as an opportunity to, to learn how to do that because I, I, even from since Kyabram, Myself and Steve Wickham from the Waterboys, the fiddler from the Waterboys, we designed all of the string parts for Galileo and what have you. So from very early on, I was hands on with that stuff. And slowly over the years, I worked up to orchestral arrangements, which is not that different, really. You know, it might sound scary, but it's it's if you if you can hear the music in your head as much as you hear a guitar solo, say, then you just figure out how to write it down. You know, and it might be 12 violins playing instead of one. In principle, that's, that's what it is. It's not that complex, I think, you know, but to do it really well is, is, is the art. And, um, Hannah just does it so great. So when, when she came in and, and brought in these parts that again were something I wouldn't have done. You know, as in when I heard them, I was like, wow, I would have never gone there. And I loved where she went. And so it was very freeing. It was very liberating. And just I really felt it worked and um, really complemented the songs and brought a flavor that I didn't have in my kit. And I think in that way, all around, no matter who, whether it was Paul or Hannah or all the other musicians, it was it was a really great learning curve to to just learn to trust what other people bring. It's a remarkable album, I have to say. It's lovely. And so many people have messaged. I said about the fact that you were coming on the podcast. So many people have messaged to say, A, that um, The Harbour was their favourite song of the year. Like wow. the amount of people who have said that's just, and that's, you know, just an absolutely incredible song. Um, how much they love the album, but so many questions as well. So I've got a few of them for you, if you don't mind. So yeah, Sean, Sean Wilson, if there was one thing that really surprised you about Paul, what would it be as a musician and a person? What surprised me for a start was how gently he was. You know, I'd met him a couple of times. I knew he was very humble and kind of quiet, really. You know, I know he has a, a reputation for being a bit of a hard nut, you know, kind of, or can be, you know, kind of, you know, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? He can yeah, be, yeah, yeah. um, <clears throat> and, um, a, a moody old bugger is what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you would laugh at that. Not moody, but yeah, you, you know, like defensive, yeah, you know, because yeah. I'm sure people get his goat up at times. And uh, I'm sure when you're at that level, it happens a lot. So I expected a little bit of that, or not, not even expected it. I, I wouldn't have been surprised, you know. Uh, but I was just so, so disarmed by the person he is and how really, uh, and the chemistry that we had instantly, you know, and how well we got on. And he was very endearing and affectionate and generous in every sense, you know, and... um I was just so impressed by that. You were living next door to each other in the cottages at Blackburn when you were staying there. Was that right? And yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. And I read a story. You talk about connection. I read a story about, um, about what was it? You said the same thing, exactly the same moment or something like that. Was that right? Uh, yeah. That was literally when we were down to the, um, the track listing, the running order, and we were, we were kind of going, okay, well, we know that should be last song on side A. We always thought of it as vinyl, you know. That's a great opening track for side two. 
you know, and we've we figured if we got those four points right, start aside one, start aside two, and and the you know the rest would fall into place, kind of. And there was a bit of massaging between our two opinions to to to, to find this the sweet spot for everything. But in the end, when it was kind of settling, and it was, you know, we kind of had a, a pretty solid running order, and we were testing it out, and we were both kind of listening from him from London, me from here, and Charles was mixing and sending us rough masters to listen to, you know. And um, I had to listen, just going to sleep one night here, and we were getting really close to the time. It was like, okay, we've got to sign off now, kind of. And um, I had to listen, just lying in bed or went through my head or something and worked three songs, and I, I kind of listened through every line. And it struck me that those first three songs, I was like, Jesus, that is my life right now. You know, it's, it's really paints how I feel about where I am. And it's just happened. And the next day I was talking to him about something and he said, you know what? I think those first three songs are just your life now or something. It was almost the same words. And I was like, fuck, that was wow. (laughs) Because, you know, it was like, it really showed me how down in the trenches he was with me. You know, because not everybody would get that and not everybody listens so deeply. And it's not probably so apparent as it seems to recognize that, you know, because, you know, like you can even say the harbor there's only a snippet of that song that's really about me. The first verse is about Johnny and the second one's about Pete, and, you know, but still it was so. So it would take somebody to really listen to get that. That was just really, really great. And it, that typified everything that happened with him. But uh, as a musician as well, I remember uh, when we played this thing that we share and he said, how about a bit of piano on this? You know, and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. And I was like, it had somehow escaped my attention that he played piano. I didn't know he played piano. I thought he might noodle on the keys a bit or whatever. And so uh, I sat in the control room and he went in and he was like, all right, Charles, you ready? And he's got the cans on. And he started doing this fucking Liberace stuff, rolls up the piano. <laughs> and I was like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> you get there? Who's in there, you know? <laughs> and that blew me away. When he came out, he says, what do you think? Was that all right? And he seemed a little bit nervous in my opinion i was like was it fucking all right i said jesus christ you know <laughs> mind blown that's a lovely way to close the album that song as well i, re- I really oh, love that yeah. it's a beautiful beautiful track there's one track I, actually a few people have asked me about as well which is um you mentioned the stars of kimvara which is beautiful that's one of those three opening songs that you mentioned but um the olympian so this is for the um syrian swimmer yusra mardini this is a remarkable story that i'm guessing again you must have found through reading a book or watching a documentary i'm, I'm assuming well i tell you really honestly that one came from I was almost handed that song on a plate and uh, it was by my wife oh right so she uh, my wife is um, well how we met was she's a cellist she doesn't really do it for a living anymore she's she's uh, she's in the film industry now she's been in stunts for years and she was she was the first stunt woman in Ireland and did it for years right up until maybe I suppose up until um, 
our son was coming along a few years ago and was like, well, we can't really throw yourself off <laughs> when you're pregnant, you know. So um, would she have been moving towards getting into the directing of stunts by that stage and coordinating, you know. So, you know, she's a creative person as well. It's the point I'm making. And but we were sitting in the car somewhere uh, and uh, she said to me, um, she said to me one day, I'm going to write a song. I was like, what? Okay, you know, and I, you know, I was kind of half not surprised, but I started to scribble down everything she said because I knew from being a writer that sometimes the first way you say something is so important the way it comes out because you'd be trying to remember how did I say that, and it's it's impossible. You're chasing a ghost, you know, so it's really important to capture your first thoughts on something. And so I started to just write it down on my phone while she was driving, and I was just going to give it to her and say, "This is what you said." And at that point, she said, um, I was only joking, you write it anyway, you know. But she had literally laid out the story about Yusra Mardini and the incident, which was crossing the sea as a refugee and a boatload of people trying to escape at night and cross over to um, Greece. And it was such a powerful story, you know. And mm. I mean, was, I'm it the very... en- was it the engine packed up and she was like treading water for hours on end? Was that right? Yeah, they were. They were in a, some kind of a, a dinghy with an with an engine, I suppose. And there was, I think, about twenty people in it, young and old. And um, the way I heard the story, the engine packed in, and it's they're they're a mile out into the water, and you know, there was no, they were probably going to drift out to sea or God knows what, you know, but. Um, and so they had little choice, but Yostra, uh, who had been training to be a swimmer all her life and wanted to, it was her dream to be an Olympic swimmer. Uh, her and her sister, who was also a swimmer, they jumped out and possibly uh, another couple of people. And they pulled the boat swimming for three hours to the coast of, of Greece. And it was just like, you know, this, this person who wants to be a, an Olympian, I was like, that is Everything that you would imagine is heroic, isn't it? When you when you hear that, you know, the original story about how the Olympics got their name or whatever was the guy who had to run a marathon to bring a message to, you know, something like that. And yeah, it was yeah. like, that is an Olympic effort, much more than half of the stuff you read about in the news with athletes taking performance enhancing drugs and everything. So I was like, that is the gold medal there you know and that was what i focused on for the song and i also thought especially because um she was a a refugee a displaced person you know i mean the the world needs to hear stories like that right at this time you know because people are so undervalued life is so undervalued and there's so much backlash against the movement of people in the world you know and I thought this is the story for that, you know. Yeah, there's a question from Alex McLaughlin on Twitter. Actually, how did you feel watching her carrying the flag of the refugee Olympic team in the opening ceremony this year? It's just so powerful. It's so powerful that she actually made it to the other side and then was chosen to be a member of this first team of displaced peoples that the the Olympic Committee put together in 2016. She swam. And uh, she won a race or two, I believe, which is that was where the opening lines came from. And and then we knew she was training for 2020 again, which became 2021. I mean, her story and the person she is, I, I believe she she's very active and she's been chosen as an ambassador by the UN for refugees around the world. And 
So it's brilliant. It's brilliant that that she gets to be that person and she's the right person to do it. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant song. And it's a great album. So I congratulate you on that. And the great thing is, I, I mentioned what a busy autumn it is. The great thing is we get to see you do it live very, very soon. Uh, so November, coming over to um, England, a bit of Scotland, and then a full Irish tour in March next year as well. So what have you got planned? I'm coming to King's Place. I cannot bloody wait. I have to say, it's been a while since I've seen you live. Uh, what can we expect? Brilliant. Well, uh, King's Place, we're going to uh, actually, we're going to have a, co- a quartet and a couple of musicians. So. Uh, Oh wow. That's gonna be that's gonna be great. I think King's Place is almost sold out actually, so there's just a handful of tickets left for that. And the other shows around the country are gonna be pretty much just me, I think. So I'm just really looking forward to it. And there's some some places I've never been and some places that I have been, but not for a long time. Quite a few of them I've only ever even opened a show in the city, you know, like Cambridge or places like that. So and they're beautiful places so i just you know gonna be my first chance to get out and play play this album to people you know after it, it's it's nearly two years since i was on stage really yeah that's mad isn't it i mean must, that must be 2019 yeah i mean do you feel nervous about it or is it more like actually it's but like getting back on a bike you know that that also it is i think you know i haven't interesting because um you know, uh, I've talked to Paul about this a few times because he's been, he has really missed it. I think, you know, I didn't miss it terribly. And I think that's because a, I've got a young family and I was really, really enjoying the time with my little boy and just getting to not miss that, you know, but also I, w- I wrote a book uh, and, and I don't mean to keep throwing that in there, but that's, that's what I actually did. And so creatively I was. So immersed in that, that I was happy to, uh, you know, it gave me a great, I was like, when this is over, I'll be back to doing what I normally do. Who knows when I'll ever, ever get a break like this again, because it's so hard to have a routine to do anything different when you're constantly going out playing shows. So I was like, I'm not going to hurry it up. When it comes along, I'll be happy to get back up there again. And uh, I had we did a live stream for the album, which in April, that was it was filmed as an actual concert, even though there wasn't an audience there. We actually just played it as a, as a performance all the way through. It felt so natural. It was even without the audience. I have to say, it was. I was amazed at how normal it felt just being up there. I, I think I, Paul and I talked about that on the little chat we had at the end of the live stream. Actually, it was, and I think we both agreed it was because when you're up there, even though there's a crowd in front of you, sometimes you're in a different place in your head anyway, because you're performing and you're thinking about the lyrics and what have you, you know? So, and I had one show about a month ago as well. It was like a toe in the water. I had to be almost dragged out to do it by my manager. <laughs> <laughs> like, Get out there and do a fucking gig. <laughs> and I practice, was, come on. <laughs> yeah, but kind of, you know, but it was, uh, and it was in Galway City, which is just, you know, half an hour from here. So, you know, it was, I was like, okay, I'll go out and do it. And, you know, the most enjoyable part of it for me, whatever it says, is that um, the rehearsal the day before the gig, I just sat with these musicians in a room. We didn't plug anything in. We just sat there and played music. And it was just really nice. It was just really nice. And to hear the sound wrap around you and, you know, the stringed instruments. And that was just, you know, and I was like, God, yeah, I didn't miss it, but. I like this place. You know? <laughs> and, and it was fascinating to, to almost say when you played the song, it was like unwrapping Christmas presents. 
they were already made. And he was like, oh, wow, we've got these songs and they work and I can remember how to do them and it's easy. And, you know, you know, so it was really nice. And, and the gig was quite nice, too. A little surreal, I have to say, in an enjoyable way. I think I was very aware more than I normally am of the audience and just maybe how special it is to do that, to get to do that, just to see it from almost new eyes as if you'd never done it before. It was one part of my head was like that. So, um, so I'm looking forward to, to just doing that more. I think uh, in a way, I think I'll never see it the same way again. It's funny, know? isn't it? Because I, I've been to a couple of gigs since since lockdown has passed over the past few months, and and each one has felt like an emotional experience in a really strange way. And I don't know if this is just a getting older thing. I don't think so. But for instance, I was at a book launch, and Ocean Colour Scene did a um, Simon from Ocean Colour Scene did a little acoustic number, and it took me back to like twenty odd years or whatever, twenty five years to, to you know when I was a younger man. But I think a lot of it was about the fact that we've missed that over the past eighteen months, and that kind of live music, that interaction with other people and stuff. It's yeah. such a special thing isn't it it is well i mean i think that works on quite a few levels you know one is being surrounded by people again and a kind of a social thing which is of itself is a very interesting thing and the effects that has on us because we haven't been able to do that but we still don't understand many things about what music does to us you know on a scientific level i mean we don't know why it has the effect it has on our emotions and, you know, uh, even take away the lyrical content or whatever, which is very cerebral and you're actually thinking, processing words. But what sound does the sonic waves when they hit your body? And it's it's almost a spiritual thing or it is a spiritual thing, you know. And so um, I think experiencing that from the perspective of being starved of it for so long as well is bound to be really interesting and uh, enriching, you know, or like being fed for the first time in a while. <laughs> Just gob- gobbling it up. <laughs> so I had an email from you. I think it was a personal email from you the other week. And it said, it's with great pleasure that I share the news with you here of my forthcoming literary debut, The Pawnbroker's Reward, a work of historical fiction, which will be released to bookshops on October the 29th this year. I, I assume it was just to me. I'm not sure. But um, this is really <laughs> exciting. So this is your lockdown project, was it? That was my lockdown project, yeah. Um, you know, I had started the book around... Even before arrivals, actually. February 2018, I went and had a meeting with a publisher who only six months before that I had released a record. So I ended 2017, I released a record called Chronicles of the Great Irish Famine. I had kind of worked on it for 16 or 17 years reading and, you know, and I tell you where it came from. I learned around the year 2000, 2001. That my granddad, uh, who he had been dead for quite a number of years, but he was kind of mysterious. He had a mysterious background. He came from where I live now in the west of Ireland, this little fishing village, really scenic place, Kinvara. We found on his birth cert, trying to find out a little bit more about his past, which was kind of some secretive about it. We found out, it said his, that he was born in a workhouse. It was because he was born out of wedlock. That was ultimately... Right. His story, and that led to all the mystery of his past and what have you. But in a way, it was a gateway to me, you know, because I was like, what's a workhouse? And all my family were the same. I don't know if people in England know generally what workhouses are. They were an English model, but of course, because we were an English colony at the time, it was laid out here too. But we're going back to Charles Dickens and that time. Well, that's, that's what most people's picture of a workhouse is when they think about Oliver. That was a workhouse. And basically, you know, they were at the time before we had a social welfare system, a social 
security system and national healthcare system. They were the beginnings of society moving towards that. You know, what do we do with our poor? What do we do with our homeless people and tramps and vagrants and, and, you know, infirm people? And, you know, so it was the beginning of that. And, you know, they were laid out all across England. It's a, it's a fascinating history. Um, and then they did the same in Ireland in a slightly different fashion because, you know, because the elite of the political establishment at the time, they didn't believe that, uh, Ireland's poor were as deserving, you know, so it was, it was done in a slightly different way. But nevertheless, I was like, what, what is a workhouse? You know, and I, it, look, actually, here it is. So this book, ah, it's just, it happens to be sitting on my desk. So <laughs> that book is, I bought that 20 years ago. And basically I was, I was walking through this, the biggest bookshop in Dublin, which is called Easton's on O'Connell Street. And there was a bargain bin, like a basket full of that book. It's called The Workhouses of Ireland, The Fate of Ireland's Poor, right? And they were like a euro or a pound. And it was literally months after I'd learned this about my granddad. I was just like, there's my chance to find out what a workhouse was. And so, and I'll read you what happened. I was, I sat upstairs on the bus and I opened it and we're literally first page, first page in, you know, and halfway down it says, these in Ireland, these things were laid out right on the eve of the famine. Early 1840s, there was 131 of them built all across the country. And so it says, the man who carried his wife from the workhouse to their old home mile after weary mile and was discovered next morning dead, his wife's feet held to his chest as if he were trying to warm them. Oh, man. I was just like, I, I remember sitting there, just got mm, feeling like the hair stand up on my neck. And, you know, we didn't learn about this in school, really. You know, it was like a, it was like a footnote in the history books we learned about like World War One. And, you know, this thing that was practically so big on our own doorstep that, you know, comparatively, it's like World War Two. The amount of our population that it affected, a million people died out of, you know, 8 million at the time. And it began this wave of emigration that never stopped. And Ireland has more people across the world. 70 million people or something claim Irish heritage across the world. That little story just so blew my mind. And I thought it was a very powerful thing. I was, uh, it took me years to unravel what, why it affected me so much. And I thought that there was a lot of beauty in it. You know, it was like this man in what people are capable of in their own, say, darkest hour that he gave his the last warmth of his body to the, the woman he loved. You know, who doesn't wish that they could be that to somebody? You know, and I thought it just humanizes it again, because all we have from that time, even though it's not that long ago, are these kind of images, you know, they're hand drawn. They're like cartoons and you don't. They don't connect, do they? <laughs> you don't realize it, you know, and I thought. And the other thing I learned was examining my own feelings about what I felt in that moment, retrospectively, if you like, was that I understood what that meant when I, in my mind, I imagined it happening to my own family, my own mother and father, or if they're my children. And that's when you kind of go, oh, geez. So, you know, and, and realizing that made me realize that that's how we experience empathy is by putting ourselves in other people's shoes. And that began my journey into, I thought, well, I tried to turn that into a song. And the more I read that book, trying to find out more about those people, I kept finding more stories, you know. 
that album. I remember, I remember watching you. I remember seeing you live at the Irish Club in London. This would have been about nine, ten years ago, maybe now. You talking about that being a working progress? That kind of. I think it was a song you yeah. played from it. And it, the Chronicles of the Great Irish Famine was the album that came out a few years back, like you say. But it, you weren't even at that point at that moment. But the the, the songs on it are beautiful. But there's a track called um, "Along the Western Seaboard." I was going to mention. I mean, th- these are these kind of really incredible personal accounts. These songs that actually resonate with the, some of the stuff that's going along around on around the world right now in terms of when you look at well that was that was my whole idea of doing it was, uh, but not only to kind of examine the history as well properly which we, has never been done in a way not not in in the arts as well but um was that it had a relevance when when i realized that thing about empathy i thought we have so much to learn from this we can still learn from this and people who can read something like that and experience empathy can transfer that into now and be a kind of person who will not allow that to happen again, you know? And so it is how we have to learn and how we have to prevent things happening. And that's why it's relevant. That's why these stories, I think, are important to keep alive because they have a universal truth in them that applies to everybody. You know, what happened was on the back of that record coming out, a publisher heard me talking about that. And 17 years after I had read that book and, and started this journey, when I put out the record of songs, I thought, OK, I'm putting that to bed now. And then this publisher came along and said, would you like to write a book? I was like, really? I thought I was. <laughs> so I wasn't finished with it. And, and what happened then even more strangely was a few months after that, I was playing a concert in a place called Skibbereen in southwest of Ireland. And um, afterwards... A man came up to me. I was kind of saying hello to a few people and as you do, selling a few CDs and what have you. And this guy waited right until the end and he was, he came up and he, he had waited. He was the last guy and we had a little chat, real nice man. And he wanted to know in particular, he was asking about that story. He said that his father came from right near where that happened. And one thing led to another. And I asked him if he'd heard of a specific tiny little place you're talking about, like a crossroads, essentially. You know, they're called townlands, they call them. And it's not like a village. It's just the name of a piece of road. And he said, uh, mm, I haven't heard of it, but leave it with me, you know. And I was staying around for another few days in this area. It was the middle of summer. And I heard from him through somebody the next day. So I called him up and he said, well, I called my cousin who called another guy and somebody spoke <laughs> to somebody in the shop or whatever. And said, I not only found out where the place was, he said, but we have found the guy who owns the land that that family lived on. And he said the remains of the cottage is there. It was covered, you know, like bushes and gorse and whatever. And a fire exposed it a few years ago. I ended up standing there looking at the place that this happened the next day. And it was just crazy. And I just thought, this story is not finished with me, you know, and uh, I had to uh, delve into it. And that's that's what became the book. Wow, brilliant. The lockdown was a perfect time to immerse myself in. And uh, when it kicked in last March, I was actually just starting to really apply myself properly after a few fits and starts and a few months, solid months here and there, but I didn't miss a single day during lockdown for over six months, seven days a week. I locked myself into this room and worked on it. And uh, it was one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. Brilliant. And how do you feel about it nearly being out in the world? Because that must be, how does it feel different to the release of an album? Not so different in that way. Yeah. Except that, um, it's a bit more blind because like with songs, you're testing them out on people and you might, you're trying them out at gigs and that kind of thing. So you have a sense of people's feelings for them. But this was literally 
me, but I mean, I, I did, I wrote it myself and then I did a second version. You know, you kind of, I, I wrote it in pencil first and then I transferred it into the computer. And then an editor came on board through the publisher and we worked on it together for six months, went through three or four more evolutions, kind of, he would say, can you expand that little bit or what have you? And, um, but apart from me and him, you know, I didn't even tell my wife what it was about, you know, so I'm locking myself in a room every day. So you're really in a, in a, in a bubble. And, uh, but I, I, I think from, you know, if I'd have never written an album or a song before, it might have been really scary. But in a way, I reckon, you know, having written a couple of hundred songs, they all have a, a beginning and a middle and an end. So you, you know how to shape something. And I trusted, I trusted myself and I just, I knew that because I was so immersed in it and didn't, because I was interested in it and passionate about it and didn't want to leave it, it was really something I didn't want to close the lid on. I was, enjoyed it that much. I was like, I, I want to get a t-shirt made that says, I spent lockdown in 1846. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I knew that that was a good sign. And uh, if you can enjoy it, then you know that somebody else will, you know. Yeah. Uh, because that's that's your only thing to go on is to trust your own instincts. If you try and write a song and you don't like it, it's very, very hard to finish. You're like, oh, my God, this icky, you know, it's like so you just trust that good instinct on if something keeps calling you, then, you know, it's OK, you know. You're back full circle to Galileo, aren't you? It's exactly the same thing, really. It's that album, that song that didn't think was for radio or whatever. It's that you absolutely loved it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah you're you're so right. You're so right. Hey, Declan, this has been so lovely to spend time with you. Um, I have two final questions for you, all right? Back to Mr. Weller. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. Which Paul Weller song are you going to go with? Wow. Uh, well, look, okay, I think That's Entertainment is an absolute all-time classic, which I love, and I could easily pick that. But I think some of his modern stuff is so great as well, you know, and my favorite of his modern stuff, and I think he's going to new places, you know, uh, and I listen to them and I have a fairly good understanding of music in terms of, you know, you can listen to something and say, I know what that guy is doing musically. You, you can understand, you know, as a musician or whatever, but I don't know how he comes up with some of this stuff, uh, really. And there's there's been one on each of the last few records that have really, and they're kind of similar. They're in a similar vein. And on True Meanings, it was Aspects. And then he's got Rockets on that was on, on Sunset. And then what's the name of the one? Uh, Still Glides the Stream. Is that, is yeah. that the right yeah. yeah. They're just They're just beautiful songs, you know, really, really beautiful songs. And they just take me away. You know, you get lost in them. So they're, they're it for me. They're, right. they're my faves. Okay. Final question. The purpose of this podcast is, I mean, really is to talk to lovely people like yourself, I'll be honest with you, but it's also to get that interview with Paul Weller that I never managed in my radio career. If it happens, when it happens, what should I talk to him about? Is there anything you think I should ask him or a topic of conversation you think will go down well? Oh, well, he hasn't, you haven't done one with him yet. Never done it in my radio career. I gave up as a presenter 10 years ago because I wasn't as good as I wow. wanted to be and was earning no money. Yeah, never interviewed him. Always Not wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's going to happen, I'm sure. Well, I mean, of course, I can't say that for him. And I think you would get on great. I would say what to talk to him about. I, I don't know. I think it's well and capable in your hands. And I'm going to tell you to trust trust yourself the same way that I do. And you, 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 you said it yourself. 
it's that same thing with Galileo or whatever. It's And I wouldn't say that if I hadn't spent an hour or so talking to you and really enjoying it, appreciating your questions and thinking that you know exactly what you're doing. How oh, blessed. So um, <laughs> I think it's all in your hands. I look forward to hearing that when it happens. Bless you, mate. Well, look, I really look forward to seeing you live in November. Good luck with the book as well. I don't think it will be um, available in shops in England yet. I'm not sure, but I will have it on tour with me. To the merch stand we go. Declan, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Dan. Thank you. You're a great guy and uh, really enjoyed that. Thank you. Good luck. My thanks once again to the amazing Declan O'Rourke. You must dig into his back catalogue. A real joy to spend time in his company and another very, very special episode of this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do leave a review it helps us to find new listeners and please do share on your social media channels you can find me on twitter at weller fan pod or on instagram and facebook it's paul weller fan podcast you can also buy me a coffee and find information about my guests in the show notes for this podcast thanks for listening i'll see you next time Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.